thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. You're listening to a podcast from 702 and Cape Talk. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Hello, Chris. Did you have a good week? You say this very good morning to you. I'm, uh, yeah, very cold here. It's, uh, it's freezing, it's about minus three. Oh, I'm and so that's sorry. just in the studio. Uh, no, that's not your problem. <laughs> <laughs> it, it makes me grateful for the nice warm days I have when I come to, to Joburg and Cape Town and see you all. Absolutely, and we're experiencing one of those today, in fact. Uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, quite a few people in the Southern Hemisphere are. I was talking to the people in Australia uh, for what was their morning, and yeah. they're expecting, or they are recording, the highest overnight lows ever. Wow. Now, this year, they're seeing nighttime temperatures, which should be sort of top teens, not more than 20, now routinely 30 degrees on the East Coast at night. Oh, my goodness. And uh, they're saying Jeez. this has never been documented. And it sort of goes along with the track record we're seeing for that's 2015 right. and then 2016 being record-breaking hot years. That's absolutely right, yeah. <clears throat> if you've got a question for Chris, give us a call. The lines are open right now in Johannesburg. The Naked Scientist will take your questions on zero double one. Double eight three zero seven zero two, and in Cape Town on zero two one double four six zero five six seven. If you want to SMS a question instead, you're more than welcome to do so. We'll monitor the SMS line as well. Three one five six seven three one seven zero two, and of course you can also tweet us at UCBS at Radio Seven Zero Two. Um, or at Cape Talk, tweet us your questions and we'll get through as many as possible. In the meantime, Chris, um, I'm very excited to hear about this soft robotic heart. Yeah, this is a new therapy potentially for heart failure. What's heart failure? Well, 40 million people or more around the world have this. It is where the heart, through reasons of disease, because of damage like a heart attack or infection or congenital problems or genetic problems, loses the ability to pump hard enough to deliver sufficient blood around the body and this deprives the tissues of sufficient blood flow and it robs people, therefore, of their ability to do anything. They feel exhausted all the time, they have no exercise tolerance and they have no quality of life. Now, the only real long-term solution for this problem is a heart transplant but literally, there are thousands of those being done every year, just a few thousand, compared to these tens of millions of people who have heart failure. So we need something else. Now, in recent years, doctors have come up with something that they dub the ventricular assist device, or VAD. And these are things that are plumbed into the heart and the large blood vessels, and they support the heart by helping to take some of the pumping job. The problem is that you are plumbing foreign material into your body in contact with your blood. And this introduces a whole raft of new problems because when blood contacts a foreign surface, it's programmed to clot. And so you have to then give people various chemicals to stop their blood clotting, and that then causes problems with people having bleeding. So we need a new solution. And there's a researcher who's currently working at the National University of Ireland. Her name is Ellen Roach. She's just finished her PhD at Harvard in America, where she has done the work that she's publishing in Science Translational Medicine this week. She and her colleagues have built a soft robot to help. 
Now, you can think of this as a bit like a glove for your heart. It is a silicone material which you would surgically implant around the heart and it contains tubes which are arranged in just the right way so that when air is pushed into those tubes, it causes the robotic sleeve to constrict or squeeze and also to rotate a little bit. And this very accurately mimics what the heart would do naturally. So the idea here is they sync the beating of this heart, this robotic sleeve, to the patient's own heart. And the benefit of that is that then it can squeeze and support the heart by helping it to eject more blood. But it doesn't, critically, affect the blood flow because there is no blood in contact with the device. And it, they've only done samples and tests so far on preclinical models. They're using pigs for this. Hmm. But what they have found is that if you take a pig, which is a very good model for a human, and put one of these things into it, in a pig that has blood flow of about half normal, because you can give it a drug to simulate heart failure, they can get the blood flow up to nearly normal levels with this new device. And so the next stage is to do more trials and then see if this can be tolerated in people. But it certainly looks like a new way of tackling a very big and an old problem, but solving some of the other problems that previous hmm. devices that sought to do this had created. Absolutely brilliant. Fantastic. We love scientists. Make the world a better place. Let's go to Four Ways. D. good morning. You're our first caller. What question do you have for the Naked Scientist? Uh, good morning. Um, Dr. Chris. Um, Hi, Dee. What, what is the best, what is the best um, uh, food stuff to eat uh, prior to an exam and during exams? Because um, like, uh, people are going to be writing the board exam on Wednesday and Thursday, which uh, is a six-hour exam, three hours in the morning and three hours in the afternoon. Now, um, it's designed to, to, you have to be, they have to be fast and um, process very quickly because exams are designed that you don't finish. So um, <laughs> I don't know whether you know a product called Red Bull. Yes. Now, now um, okay, I'll tell you what my strategy always was because I used to go into all my exams armed with a bit of physiology and biochemistry knowledge and, and also some common sense, and this formula worked for me. Now, when you are doing an exam, you are stressed. A bit of stress is good because it focuses your mind and it helps you to, to get motivated. Too much stress is destructive because you cannot concentrate properly and you make silly mistakes. If you have high levels of caffeine in your bloodstream, a little bit of caffeine is good, and if you're addicted to caffeine like me, not having any caffeine is bad because you can't think about anything other than getting some caffeine. Too much caffeine and you will push yourself, especially coupled with the stress that's going on, into that jittery state that means you don't do very well. So it's tempting to pull all-nighters and drink loads of coffee and then have a big strong coffee before an exam. It's probably a bad idea. You probably shouldn't have more than you would normally have in your day-to-day -day life in terms of coffee because that together with the stress it will push you over the edge otherwise now in terms of energy levels sitting there although you're sitting there immobile you are thinking very hard your brain burns off about 20 percent of the calories you get through in a day or more so you need to feed your brain and having a decent breakfast which is not full of sugar and then nothing else is is the best plan so a breakfast which has got protein in it and some complex carbohydrates 
starches which will slowly break down into sugars and release those that you can then use in your brain that's a good idea cereal covered in sugar is really bad because what happens is the sugar gets absorbed really fast into the bloodstream gives you a big spike in sugar and this then causes a big surge of insulin the sugar lowering hormone which in turn induces a state of sleepiness so actually it can knock you off your ability to focus so therefore protein keeps you from feeling hungry and it's a sustainable energy release source and complex carbohydrates the same fruit is really good uh, and, and stay hydrated you can take bottles of water into exam into exams and if you're sitting there you can get thirsty sipping from a bottle of water from time to time means that you won't get thirsty you'll be able to concentrate stay hydrated and then have a decent lunch not a huge great lunch which will make you go to sleep again same principles i suggested for breakfast and the most important, most, most, most important, crucial detail, a good night's sleep the night before. Easy to say, hard to do when you're stressing about exams, but it is so important. Sleep is, is, is really, really critical. One, you're rested and you can concentrate and perform at your best when you've had a good night's sleep, but two, never try and sit an exam when you've crammed all night because something really important happens that we don't understand when you go to sleep, but the information you are processing during the day gets consolidated, reinforced, and and all the rubbish gets chucked away when you're sleeping so that you have clear information in your head the next day. So always try to sleep on something you seek to retain and regurgitate for an exam the night before. Okay, all the best, D. And did you finish your exams, Chris? Or does those who designed it not to be finished beat you? No, we, we never had anything so horrible. That sounds soul-destroying. Exams that are designed, you can't finish them. And that, that really does sound like the way to defeat everyone's confidence. But I was very lucky I always did finish my exams. Um, but exams are a bit like, um, I mean, my, my person who trained me in medicine used to say, you need battle practice. And it's a bit like saying, you know, Andy Murray didn't turn up to Wimbledon and win there without doing some practice first. And exams are something you practice for. And uh, the technique is really important. No different from tennis in that regard. So you learn to play the game. And uh, w walking into an exam that you've never seen, never rehearsed, never practiced, you're not going to do very well. If you do lots of practice, you will. Absolutely. Hello, Teresa. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Hello, Chris. Hi, Teresa. Morning, Chris. My, um, we attended your show when you were in South Africa last year. And in one of your experiments, you used a word called strontium. Now, some years yes. ago, I contracted heavy metal poisoning, and it was strontium. How on earth does one get this into one system? Well, uh, just to reassure people, the experiment you're referring to was we were making colours in yes. flames by spraying... Yes various things into the flame and demonstrating that the way in which we can identify the chemicals which are present in the world around us is oh. by looking at how they both absorb and release energy and, and in this case light energy and oh. each individual element absorbs energy at a different wavelength or color and releases these lights again this energy again at different wavelengths or colors so we can discriminate between different elements that way and I went to the chemistry lab and I helped myself to a little bit of strontium which is quite safe if you're careful with it. And mm. I put that into the solution and use that to generate a nice red colour. Now, mm. a little bit of strontium, which is used to colour a flame, you need a, you know, a handful of atoms to do that. The dose that you're exposed to is tiny. If you are living in an environment where, and I, I mean, there's a whole ra range of reasons why an environment will be contaminated with something, industry can be to blame, usually. 
geography is important. There are some parts of the world where these things exist as minerals and rainwater percolates through a rock and it draws out some of these soluble salts and puts them in drinking water. Those are all ways of getting exposed to these things. If you are exposed to these things in your diet or in the water you drink chronically, so in other words over a long period of time, you can end up building up these chemicals in your body. Because the way the periodic table of elements works is that we organise things into groups and columns where the elements are all quite similar to each other but they just get bigger the further down the table you go. And so you can end up with some of these chemicals getting incorporated into your body instead of other atoms that look the same and chemically are the same but might be a bit bigger or smaller. And so that's how it can build up in the body because it gets assimilated and incorporated into tissues and, and, and things like your bones. So oh. where, where your source would have come from, I don't know, but it sounds like you're on the case and hopefully you're not contaminating yourself anymore. Oh. Um, what are the adverse effects of this? Well, there's a whole range of them and they vary according to what the chemical is. So, for example, if we take lead, which is quite a different example, but this is a common one because lead was so universal in the world because it was added as an anti-knocking agent to petrol everywhere until fairly recently, really. And this meant that every time a car drove down the road, it was throwing out pollution, including particles of lead, which were in the air. People then breathed them in and lead then gets distributed all around the body but it is poisonous towards the enzyme systems that make energy and therefore tissues that are very energy dependent are most sensitive to being damaged by lead. So it was damaging to the brain, for example, because it would get in and mess up the ability for your brain cells to make enough energy for themselves. And the most vulnerable tissues tend to be the ones that are growing the fastest. And this, if, if you're a human and you're three years old, th this is important because obviously you're growing very, very fast. Thank you so much, Teresa. We're going to take uh, more of your questions after this break. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. If you've got a question for The Naked Scientist, give us a call. We'll get through as many as possible on 011-8830702 and in Cape Town on 021-446-0567. Uh, before we go back to the lines, Chris, let's take one from the cheap seats on the SMS line. Yes, one for you. Uh, Chris... <laughs> How can eating certain foods suddenly cause an allergic reaction when one has been eating those foods for many years already? Well, there's a number of reasons why this can happen. Food isn't all equal. And you might call a, a shrimp a shrimp, but there are certain forms of seafood which grow in certain parts of the world. They might be slightly different and have slightly different chemicals in them and mm. proteins in their tissues compared to a similar food stuff from somewhere else in the world. It might be a slightly different species, for example. What food stuff feeds on can also make a difference. Someone I know, for example, uh, had a reaction to a chemical which is made by algae, which grow on the seafloor. And if you eat fish that eat that algae, you can then get the reaction to it because the algae puts the chemicals into the fish. The fish are fine, but when you eat it, you're sensitive to it. So what we're calling an allergic reaction could be a chemical reaction to some toxin or something as well. So important to bear that in mind. And then there's the whole point that the immune system is an adaptive system. The reason it is an immune system is that once you have been exposed to something once, you then have the opportunity for your immune system to remould and reshape itself so that it can change recognize the threat and defend you from that threat coming back again. It's rather like an antivirus system on your computer that as soon as it sees a threat, updates itself and says, right, now I know this exists and if it comes along again, I will block it before it gets anywhere near my computer. 
So what could be happening with someone who develops a new allergy is that for some reason, and this does happen, the regulatory system in your immune system that normally stops you reacting to the wrong things breaks down temporarily against the one thing that you're now reacting to and you begin to mount an immune response against that thing that previously your immune system is quite happy to ignore. And we know this happens because people do develop allergies as they grow older, but it's more common to get allergies when you're younger mm. and most people, by the time you're older, your immune system's getting weaker, not stronger. But it does still happen and people do get, say, asthma later in life. Fascinating. Paul in Durbanville, thank you for your patience. Hi, Chris. Um, Hello, Paul. Okay, so, yeah, hi. You're cooking a scrambled egg in a pan, and the egg sticks to the bottom, a uh, pretty uniform uh, layer, and uh, then you want to get it off, and it's very difficult, so you soak it in water. Now, I always argue with my wife. She says if she soaks it in water with dishwashing liquid in the water, it'll come off quicker and easier than normal warm water. Is there a scientific right. reason why soap would speed up this process? Well, it might do, Paul. And the reason that we add soap and specifically detergent to the, the greasy pan that we've been cooking with is that the way detergent works is it's a long wiggly chain of carbon atoms on one end of which is an acid group. And the acid group makes the carbon chain attractive to water and the carbon chain, the wiggly bit, makes the detergent molecule attractive to fat. And so... The way a detergent works when you put it on a, a pan or a dish or something is that the wiggly bit, the carbon-rich bit that doesn't normally like water, sticks itself into a blob of fat and the acid bit at the other end, which doesn't like the fat and stays out of the way, likes to stay near the water. And with it, this happening lots and lots of times, you end up surrounding each little blob of fat with these detergents which are with the wiggly fatty bit stuck into the oily grease you want to remove and the acid bit round the outside in contact with the water and you form a little blob which is attractive to water but has got fat wrapped up on the inside and it prizes the blobs of fat away from the surface they're stuck to and into the water. Now if you imagine if you've got egg stuck all over your pan and it's got grease in there because a the egg was a bit oily because it naturally is and you've added some oil to the pan when you were cooking it then the water's going to find it hard to get between the egg and the pan because there's oil there in a thin layer and water and oil don't mix. But if you put detergent in there, the process I've just described will happen and the detergent will go in and pluck out the oil molecules faster and this means the water will have more access to more egg and more pan surface to help to clean the pan. And that's why we all love detergents. Uh, but use them with care because they're not great for the environment. The million dollar question, Paul, are you going to tell wifey that she was right and you were wrong? Uh, that's not what I wanted to hear, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'll buy you a beer. <laughs> oh, my goodness, love it. Chris, thanks so much. Love your insights as always. Pleasure. Have a Pleasure. wonderful week ahead, and we'll do it again next week. I'm looking forward to it already. Thanks, everyone. Great questions. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.